Well, thank you, Deacon Biao and the music team for leading us uh, in the first part of our time together. Now, the best way to follow the sermon is really to have your Bibles open to Mark chapter 1. As well, if you find it helpful to download the bulletin, you'll find an outline there and that will guide you along uh, in the sermon. Now, I grew up with an older brother who is only a year older than me. Now, unlike many of our kids and our teenagers now, uh, who are often glued to their phones uh, and have things to entertain them all the time, uh, we grew up with nothing much. So we landed up playing, you know, rough games, two boys, which is uh, typical of us, you know. I, I remember a time when our house was undergoing renovations and our whole family went to stay with my aunt's family. Uh, my parents had to work and they also have to go and check on the renovations. So they, they, they wouldn't get back to my, my aunt's place until quite late at night. So we are pretty much on our own in my aunt's house. And my aunt had a really hard time controlling us. And we played so rough that I think I hurt my brothers badly one day. And I, I honestly cannot remember what I did to him. Now, isn't it common, you know, for offender to forget his offense? Uh, so convenient, right? Anyway, my, my parents came back late that night and we were already in bed sleeping. My, my aunt told them what happened and boy, were they furious. They woke me up from my sleep and punished me good. But I will spare you the details and my blushes of what I did. But my parents coming back is normally a good thing. It's good news to us, but not in this instance. But now I am a parent. Am I good news or bad news to my children? You see, when they were younger, daddy coming to take care of them when mommy is out, it's good news. Why? Because daddy is the liberal one, right? We'll let them watch more TV than usual, eat stuff that they normally wouldn't get to eat, and play more than usual. However, I was told that I'm not so good news nowadays. Why so? For I will now insist that they finish all their work before they play or watch TV or YouTube. I'm not good news anymore. But what about Jesus? Now, according to the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is breaking into the world scene. He has come to the world. Is Jesus coming good news or bad news? And that is what we are going to explore today. Jesus has come. Is that good news or bad news? Well, it firstly depends on who he is. See, Mark begins the gospel by saying that it is about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, for those who are new with us or, or new to Christianity, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's actually the title Christ or Christo, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. Now, Messiah means the anointed one. You see, in the Old Testament, Specific people were anointed with oil for a specific role such as a king or priest. And by the time of Jesus, there are expectations of a messianic king who would come. And Israel did not have a king at the time, did not have a king on the throne since exile. They were ruled by foreign nations for centuries. 
However, there are many prophecies in the Old Testament of a messianic king who, in the line of David, coming to defeat all of God's enemies, to restore Israel and bring in God's end-time rule. So quite obviously, the Jews were looking forward to this king coming. You know, it's like the Allied forces going into Europe and going to Asia in World War II. The people in those conquered countries were so looking forward to their liberation. So as such, by naming Jesus as the Christ is therefore not a small matter. Mark is saying that Jesus is that prophesied Messiah King. It is indeed a big deal. It will surely make the Jews stand, sit up and read the gospel. It is good news for the Jews that the Christ has come. And in verse 1, Jesus is also introduced as the Son of God. Now, the title Son of God is often used of the kings, of kings in many ancient cultures. And in the Old Testament, the Davidic king is also known as the Son of God. And we see that in Psalm 2, which is alluded to when God called Jesus, You are my son, after his baptism. Let me read Psalm 2, verse 6 to 9 for you. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your, your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. As you can see, calling Jesus the Son of God will mean once again that Jesus is the king appointed by God to rule. He will be the heir of all nations and is able to destroy all who goes against him. However, this title, Son of God, attributed to Jesus is more than to point to him as the king. See, Jesus is known as his son and God as his father in very unique and intimate terms. See, the Israelite kings do not address God in the same way as Jesus. And furthermore, Jesus is declared as the Son of God in very significant places in the Gospel of Mark. In chapter 9, verse 7, God identifies the transfigured Jesus as the Son of God. And in chapter 15, verse 39, at the end of the gospel, Jesus is declared by the Roman centurion as the Son of God after his death. And furthermore, Jesus affirmed that he is indeed the Son of the Blessed One when he was questioned by the high priest. And in subsequent chapters of Mark, you will read that what Jesus says and what he does are only things which only God can say and do. See, all this tells us that Jesus is not merely the Davidic king, but the unique and divine son who acts on God's behalf. See, if calling Jesus as the Christ is not shocking enough for the first readers of Mark's gospel, the title, Son of God, certainly will. And that is especially so because they were still ruled by a powerful emperor of Rome. You know, it's like today, if you pick up a biography and it's titled, 
the story of Ko Wee Yao as President of the United States, when Mr. Joe Biden is still the sitting president. Now, the understanding of Jesus as the Son of God is further enriched by the next phrase of God's declaration in verse 11. With you, I am well pleased. Now, this phrase uh, alludes to Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul's delight. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So this means that Jesus is not only the Christ and the Son of God, he is also the servant. See, in Isaiah, the servant is the one whom God appoints to bring justice, to restore the tribes of Israel, and to be a light for the nations and to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And these are all accomplished through his suffering, which we will read from Isaiah 52 to 53. So in summary, this is the identity of Jesus. He is the anointed king, the unique son of God, and the suffering servant who will rule and bring justice and bring salvation. So will Jesus' coming be good news or bad news? Surely he's good news, right? He's the one whom the Jews were looking forward to. God's salvation and rule will come with him. Hence, there's so much hype around Jesus. However, we will soon learn that the people, including Jesus' disciples, have trouble marrying the idea of being the servant and the king in Jesus. Jesus has come. Is that good news or bad news? Well, secondly, it depends on what Jesus is going to do. In other words, it depends on what role Jesus has. See, I remember when I was uh, studying in a university, uh, I was in a business school, contrary to what a lot of people think. Most people think that I'm an engineer, but I was unfortunately or fortunately not. But anyway, all business uh, students where I studied have, have to do the same common modules in the first year. And we then have to choose our specialization, specialization from the second year onwards. Now, I still remember the time when uh, all the heads of those specializations will come to, you know, pitch their, their specialization to us. You know, and uh, most of them will come and tell us you know, how good it is, you know, in the, if you're in marketing or uh, you're in HR, you know, what, what we will learn and, and what industry we'll, we'll get into upon graduation. But the most memorable one was the head of the Applied Economics specialization. And how did he make his, his speech? Well, he started off by saying that all that we need to know about this specialization or in the course is already in all those brochures. He's not going to tell us any more things about that. You can go and read it up on your own. So he's going to tell us something else. Well, he's going to show us what past graduates are doing now. So he took out, you know, a stack of name cards from his pocket and he starts showing them to us via a visualizer, right? The common titles are economists, analysts, consultants, manager. But the one that really caught my eye was the name card which reads, Chief Strategies. 
Wow, what a title. Chief strategist. Well, give me a bit like the Sun Zi or, or, or the Zhuge Liang vibes, right? You know, but he goes on to say that, well, he has no idea what this graduate is doing, actually. Right? But I was sold nonetheless, right? So, so shallow, right? Just cheat strategies, and I, I went for it. You know, but what am I illustrating here? Well, we may know the identity of, and the titles of Jesus, but what is his role? What did Jesus come to do? And we can see that from the quotations in the passage. Mark gave two quotations in verses 2 and 3 to, to introduce both John and Jesus. While Mark attributed both quotations to Isaiah, the prophets, they were taken from Malachi and Isaiah. Now this is probably due to Isaiah being the major and the earlier prophet as compared to Malachi. And furthermore, both quotations point to what Isaiah prophesied about in the last days. So let us look at the quotation in verse 3, which is taken from Isaiah 40. Let me read that for you. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And from verse 9, Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up. Fear not, say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God, behold the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those that are with young. See, Isaiah 40 speaks of a time that is after the exile. See, Israel was defeated and sent to exile as a result of their sins. Isaiah 40 is that turnaround chapter which speaks about God bringing comfort, forgiveness, and salvation. The sins of the people will be pardoned by God. How they are pardoned and how their sins are paid for are not revealed in this chapter but is grounded on God's grace. And the image in Isaiah 40 is actually a second exodus. See, God will bring them out from slavery in a foreign land through the wilderness and into the promised land back to Jerusalem. But it will not be from Egypt this time round, but from Babylon. And just like how God's glory was revealed in the first exodus, His glory will once again Reviewed, reviewed in the second exodus according to verse 5. Now this surely, surely it is good news, right? And as we read from verse 9, it's proclaimed as good news. God himself will come back to Jerusalem and to Mount Zion. 
and he will not only come to rule, but also care for his people as a shepherd cares for his sheep. Now, in a way, this prophecy was partially fulfilled in the return of the Israelites, as written in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. But it is far from fulfillment, or far from full fulfillment. The Israelites were still under foreign rule, and God was not known to have returned. So here is the significance of this quotation in Mark's Gospel. John is the prophesied messenger who will prepare the way for the Lord. See, if you have watched enough period dramas, you will remember scenes of people, you know, in front of the entourage, right, of the king. You know, they'll be shouting at, at the crowds to make way for the king, you know, or, or for the emperor to pass. And then the king or the emperor will then come. So if John is that messenger preparing the people to meet the king, then who is Jesus? See, Isaiah 40 God himself will come after the messenger. He's not merely just the king. That means that Jesus is then God who will come after John. And he will go to Jerusalem. He will bring salvation, forgiveness, comfort, reward, and recompense to his people. That is once again good news. And the other quotation in verse 2 is taken from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 to 5. Allow me to read that for you again. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like a fuller soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired workers in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who trust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Now, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, once again prophesied about a messenger to come. See, the next chapter, Malachi 4, suggests that this messenger will come like Elijah. Now that certainly fits with how John the Baptist dressed and ate. And who will he prepare the way for? Again, it will be the Lord or the Lord of hosts, like Isaiah 40. However, there is something about what the Lord will do according to Malachi 3 as compared to Isaiah 40. Verses 2 to 3 says that the Lord is coming to purify the Levites who are the priestly tribes. He will then make their sacrifices acceptable. And why is that necessary? If you go back and read Malachi 1 and 2, it will tell us 
that they have polluted the sacrifices with their sin and even promoted evil. And furthermore, Malachi chapter 3, verse 5 tells us that the Lord will come in judgment on those who do not fear God, the sorcerers, the adulterers, those who swear falsely, that is giving false testimonies, and oppress others, especially the vulnerable. See, by quoting this passage, Mark is once again pointing subtly but clearly to Jesus as the coming Lord and God. See, will Jesus' coming be good news or bad news? See, for those who are oppressed, this will be good news, right? Justice will be served. However, for those who were the oppressors, the sinners, those that do not fear God, Jesus' coming is bad news. He is coming to purify, judge, and punish. Yet ironically, in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, the people, or more specifically, the, the corrupt priests, they were seeking and hoping for the Lord to return. See, they thought they would delight in his return. However, they belittled their sin. They thought that their false worship and hypocritical sacrifices put them in a good position before God. However, they are so far, so far from reality and truth, they would have to reckon with God's judgment instead. Jesus has come. Is that good news or bad news? Firstly, it depends on who Jesus is. Secondly, it depends on what Jesus is going to do. And lastly, it depends on what response we have. See, John the Baptist came as a forerunner, as a messenger before the coming of Jesus. And what, is, what was his main role? Well, verse 4 tells us that he was baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. See, baptism with water represents the washing and the cleansing of sins. However, the baptism of John is arguably without precedent. It was different from the common and repeated washing that the Jews normally do. And it seems more like a sort of an initiatory kind of a washing to signify new commitment. Thus, it is important to note that people, including the Jews from the Judean countryside and even from the capital Jerusalem, were coming to John to confess their sins and be baptized even those who assume that they are the people of God need to respond rightly to their sins. And the significant part of their response is to repent. See, John was not merely baptizing people, but he was proclaiming and calling people to repent. And when John was later arrested and killed Jesus, began his public ministry. And what was his main message? Well, verses 14 tells us that Jesus proclaimed the gospel of God. And what is the content of this gospel? Verse 14 tells us that Jesus proclaimed this gospel and is, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. 
repent and believe in the gospel. See, the Old Testament prophecies about the coming of God's end-time rule is going to be fulfilled. The time has come. God's rule and reign is going to happen imminently. And it's imminent because the king has arrived. Now, I, I am a very big lover of epic movies. And I, so I love you know, the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit series. Now, the first movie of the Hobbit series is about the descendant of the dwarf king, Thorin Oakenshield, trying to claim the, the dwarf kingdom called Erebor, right, from Smok the dragon. Now, in order to get to the fortress uh, on the mountains where the dragon is, Thorin Oakenshield and his team of dwarves have to pass through a place called Lake Town. But the people are reluctant to let them pass. Why? Because this dragon has killed many dwarves and many humans a few decades before. And he threatened to destroy the whole town if the people let anyone get to the fortress. So there is genuine fear among the humans that Thorin might make the dragon come out and destroy the town. So the man in the town called Bard came up to Thorin and said, you have no right to enter that mountain. But Thorin's answer was excellent and true. He replied, I have the only right. You see, Thorin was the only right, has the own, only person who has the right to take back his kingdom. Why? Because he was the true king of the dwarf kingdom. Indeed, no one else has that right. Similarly, Jesus is the king. He is God's son who has come to establish God's kingdom. He has the only right to do so because he is the only son of God. See, when Jesus comes, it marks the beginning of God's rule. And what response does this king demand? He told people to repent and believe in the gospel. See, John the messenger has proclaimed repentance and now Jesus demands that his hearers repent and believe in the gospel. But what, what then does repent mean? Its basic meaning is to to change, right? Or to turn. You are heading in one direction and now you are to turn in a different direction. Now, the direction that all sinners take is to turn away from God and towards Satan, towards self-rule, towards sin. So repentance means to turn from that direction. But turn to where? Well, it is turned to God to be ruled by Jesus, the King. It is more than just confessing sins or, or feeling sorry and, and having regret for what you have done. That is not repentance. That is only a pause in the same direction. Repentance requires a 180-degree 
change of direction and orientation towards God. And this new direction is captured in the second part of Jesus' proclamation. It is to believe in the gospel. Now, the gospel does not refer to just a set of beliefs or doctrine. See, as we have said earlier, the gospel is about Jesus. He's the messianic king. He is the son of God who has come to rule, to save, to forgive, and to judge. To believe in the gospel is to believe in the person Jesus Christ. Now, belief in the Bible is also not merely an intellectual agreement. As we will see in the gospels, even the demons know who Jesus is better than any one of us. To believe is to give yourself totally to Jesus, trusting and living in his ways. That is why Jesus called his disciples to follow him, not just believe in this set of doctrine. It is a wholehearted devotion and submission to him. To believe in the Gospels is essentially to trust, to commit, and to give full allegiance to Jesus. This response of repentance and belief in him is what Jesus the King demands of us. So we come back to the big question we want to answer today, right? Jesus has come. Is that good news or bad news? Jesus is God's King and Son who has come to rule, save, forgive and judge. That is good news or bad news depending on which category of people we belong to. See, if we are his people, it is good news because he is the long-awaited Messiah who brings in God's end-time rule of peace, salvation, and forgiveness. But on the other hand, if we are not his people, then his coming is bad news indeed. For sinners and all those who do not fear God, all those who do not submit to Jesus. Jesus' coming means only judgment. And that is the default status of all humankind. So Jesus' call to repent and believe in him is his gracious offer to change their status and change our outcome as a result. But you know, the word repent we don't normally use it. It's such an offensive word in our modern world today, isn't it? See, we are repulsed. We're repulsed by the idea that someone can tell us that we have done something wrong. We are infuriated when others tell us that we are living our lives in the wrong way. How dare he tell me that? Who does he think he is? See, deep inside of us, we think we are not going in the wrong direction. We may say to ourselves, yeah, I've done a few unwise things, not so nice things here and there, but my life is still pretty steady. I'm, I'm doing well in school. I'm doing well at work. You know, my family, my relationships, yeah, can be doing well too. I have everything I wanted. 
And if I've done something wrong, it is because someone else has done something wrong to me first. Or the environment calls for such actions. He is the one who provoked me first. That's why I did this. Oh, it's, it's, it's normal. It's normal to act in this competitive dog-eat-dog world. Everyone is doing the same thing. It is only human. But that is a very shallow view of sin and our rebellion against God. People and circumstances only bring out what is in our hearts. See, our rebellion and our rejection of God and His ways manifests itself in our sinful behaviour and thoughts. If sin is that shallow, Jesus wouldn't need to come and Jesus wouldn't need to die. The coming of Jesus means that our rebellion and our sin will be dealt with. It will not go unnoticed. It will not be unaddressed. And this illusion where we stand before God can further be reinforced by our shallow view of repentance. See, we sometimes feel that, you know, we think that, that feeling bad or, or showing remorse is good enough. See, recognition of sin is only the first step. We actually need to turn around. And perhaps we think that our repentance is the mere attendance and the participation of religious activities. And that was what the priests, the leaders, and the people thought in the time of Malachi. They were sitting pretty comfortably, right, with their corrupt worship and their false living. They were so confident of themselves that they can profess to delight in the coming of the Lord. But the same can be said of the scribes and the Pharisees in Jesus' time. They have a shallow view of their sin and repentance. What awaits them is the bad news. It's the bad news that the judgment is coming because God's anointed king has come. So we have to ask ourselves, will Jesus' coming be good news or bad news to us? See, by default, it will be bad news because we are sinners. But here is Jesus' gracious offer to us to change that default. Repent and believe in Him. See, Jesus went to the cross to suffer as the servant to make this offer effective and valid. Salvation and forgiveness are possible because Jesus paid for the penalty for sin with his life. See, my friends, this offer will end when death comes or when Christ comes again. So you have to make up your mind. Whether you are a churchgoer or not, self-professed Christian or not, your response to Jesus' offer is what ultimately counts. And I pray and hope you will turn and follow Jesus. And if you have turned and followed Jesus, then the coming of Jesus is good news indeed. 
if you have been struggling with sin, weighted down by all the burdens of sin, then this is good news. He came to bring us on another exodus to free us from the slavery of sin. If you are under oppression or persecution or you're suffering injustice, it is good news because he came to bring justice. If you are suffering, he will restore all things and bring in God's end time rule and put an end to sin, to death, and to suffering. His coming will be good news indeed. Let us go to God in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come humbly before you. And search us, O God, and, and know our heart. Try us and know our thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in us. If there is, O Lord, convict us of our sins. Convict us of our pride and our rebellion against you. And lead us in the way everlasting. Lead us by your grace to, to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus. And help us know that this way, this direction, this following of Jesus will indeed be good news where we will experience and enjoy salvation, forgiveness, justice, and the loving care of our shepherd. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.